What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is the city of Stockton's inaugural poet laureate, Tama Brisbane. Tama, thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled, Kat. Thank you for inviting me. Our absolute pleasure. I want to start with a bit about you, the personal, specifically where and how you grew up, what your family was like, and when you found the gift of the word. Okay, so the gift of the word was probably always with me. I'm told that I started speaking in full sentences at 10 months and just kind of went from there. I am a child of the Watts riots. I grew up in Southern California. I have vivid memories of embers and ashes floating in the air and National Guardsmen perched on the roof of the grocery store where my grandmother and I would shop. And I knew instantly that something had fundamentally changed in my environment. Shortly after that, I remember my mother taking me to see the touring company of Raisin in the Sun, where I got to see Sidney Poitier, Ivan Dixon, Glenn Turman, Ruby B uh, wow. on stage. And I knew that words could make magic and they could make magic coming from people that looked like me. And it's been a love affair ever since. Tell me, you mentioned, I, I love, my listeners know, I love to talk about grannies. And so you mentioned yours. Tell me about her and her influence on your life. Oh, my grandmother. She was my North Star. She was a biracial woman who grew up in Kansas. And she came to... Los Angeles in the 1940s-ish migration, and she was a riveter. Uh, she worked in the uh, shipyards, and she was kind of a hippie. I, I always remember her dressing um, very much in tune with the 1960s. It was always half tie-dye, half cultural. Uh, but she took no crap from people. You mentioned being a child of the Watts riots and recognizing fundamentally something had shifted. And of course, then we enter into the Black Power uh, movement era. Talk about how that was reflective in your writing and how your writing helped you process your Blackness, particularly in a tumultuous time in America's racial history. I was in the fourth grade and learning about literature. At that time, we were celebrating Negro History Week. We still didn't have Black History Month. It was still Negro History Week. And I was lucky enough to be in a series of classrooms with teachers who were very focused on making sure that we took that opportunity to learn as much history as we could. And that just involved a lot of reading. 
and that was my passion. And so I would be reading um, Black poems and County Cullen and Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks. And then at night, because I had my own television, because I was the only child and spoiled beyond belief, I would watch a public television program, oddly enough, from New York called Soul. And the host was Ellis Hazlip. And I got to see the last poets as they were coming into their own. And so poetry was part of my nighttime routine. And I would write little poems based on what I had heard from Felipe Luciano, who was my very first poetry crush, because the man was fine as hell. <laughs> and, um, as I started noticing the changes in my neighborhood, uh, because you don't see that kind of damage and not feel trauma literally in the air because buildings became, instead of places where we hung out, they looked wounded. They looked damaged and scarred and, and broken. And so I began to write about that. And it started to inform how I viewed myself, even as a child, and starting to notice the differences. Now, it didn't hurt that my mom and my grandmother were both social justice um, women, and they worked in early versions of uh, neighborhood adult participation projects. And so they would come home and they would talk shop, and their shop was politics. And so I would hear what Ron Karenga was doing before he became the, the father of Kwanzaa. And I would hear about what the police were doing downtown and conflicts. And I just began to process the images that I would hear in their conversation and transfer it to the page. In addition to... Uh being the poet laureate of Stockton, and we'll talk a little bit about what that life is like shortly. Um, you run an org called With Our Words. Talk to us about that. With Our Words came about completely and totally by accident and happenstance. Uh, in my former career, I was an electronic court reporter. Digital court reporter is what they call it now. But it required that I have my own sound system. And when we moved to Stockton and began to make friends and make connections. There was an open mic that was going on and they didn't have any good microphones. And so I allowed them to use my equipment. And then that caught the attention of some festival organizers who organized uh, an event called Color in the Valley. And they asked us to produce the spoken word portion of it. And this would have been early 2000s when HBO Deaf Poetry was in its heyday. And so we produced a spoken word event and that involved creating workshops for young people to begin to own their voices and tell their own stories using spoken word and slam poetry. And with our words was an outgrowth 
of being involved in that event. And say more about the current work of With Our Words for my folks that don't know. The current work of With Our Words, we will be in our 20th year next year, and it has been a blessing, a trial, a challenge, and a reward to work with young people using spoken word, slam poetry, literacy through literary and performing arts. And so we have an annual competition called the All City Poetry Slam. And in past years, we've opened up three times for Common and once for John Legend and once for Angela Davis and once for Talib Kweli. And it's just an amazing thing to watch these young kids realize that they can write their way from the page to the stage and they don't go back. They realize that language and having a facility with language opens so many doors. Uh, We now have from our initial cohort of kids that we workshopped in 2007, 2008, we've got about six or seven who are now teaching in high schools and even on college campuses. So it's a blessed work. It's probably the coolest job you can create. Um, I was muted, excuse me. That actually segues nicely into a question I was gonna ask you, because I was actually gonna ask you to walk us through um, a story that you have about a young person who you watch their life trajectory change because of poetry and, and slam poetry experience. Oh, my favorite story, uh, Anthony Orozco. So I was a teaching artist with the One Program, and the One Program is Stockton's version of continuation schools. And that's my favorite place to teach because those are the kids that are going to give you the most attitude and the most mouth, but they have the most potential for leadership. And Anthony was one of those kids that would come in and be the class clown, be the disruptor, uh, would fight me over writing six lines. And if he did write six lines, three of them had the F word and the other two had tacos. And (laughs) we would just go toe to toe. I threw him out of my class more times than I could think, but something kept him coming back. And he finally began to get engaged. And He began to write more and write more, and he began to connect his writing to the stories of his Chicano heritage. And I convinced him one year to enter the All City Poetry Slam. And he did. And the night that he competed in the finals, um, his father was um, incarcerated. And he was in a neck and neck fight with uh, another young lady from a much more privileged school. But by the time we got to the final round and he spit his last piece and I collected the scores from the judges, I realized that Anthony had won. And when we made the announcement from the stage that he was All City Poetry Slam grand champion, he was on the phone. And I'm thinking, this is so typical. 
this kid is about to do something wonderful. He's on his phone. Anthony, get on the stage. Well, it turns out he was actually talking to his father. And so his father had a chance to hear him win the All City Poetry Slam from prison. Anthony would go on to win this, the slam one more time. So he became a two-time champion. Uh, he created a video that talked about the connection of Big Pharma and Big Sugar and Big Soda and how the billions of dollars that they spend in creating advertising to convince black and brown youth to continue to consume these overly sweetened drinks. And he connected that to farm workers and their families in the fields of the Central Valley. And you can actually find it on YouTube. It's called Empty Plate. And that poem was actually written up in the Journal of American Medicine. And Anthony is now a dad. Uh, he has a little girl, Sochi, who runs him. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank yeah, you so much for sharing that story. Stories. Um, that's amazing. Uh, in addition to with our words, you are also the county coordinator for California Poets in the Schools, one of the nation's largest in-school uh, poetry programs. What is that program? So CPITS is an amazing organization. Um, it is one of the largest and one of the oldest here. And you, it is a group of poet teachers, uh, that are spread throughout California. And I think we've got, what, 58 counties? I think almost every county has a California Poets in the Schools program. And we book residencies in K through 12 schools. And we might be with a classroom for a week or a semester or sometimes year round. And we are engaged with that classroom giving them exposure to different forms of poetry, different exercises. They culminate in um, maybe a slam, maybe a particular special event, and you get a chance to create a very focused learning environment centered around poetry, spoken word, language, vocabulary building, team dynamics, presentation. There's so much that goes into the teaching of the art form. And so when people say something like, it's just poetry, I will accept that, but not in the sense of just meaning it's merely poetry. I will accept it in the sense of it's just meaning that it is right, it is proper, it is appropriate that we be using this art form. And the, the teachers, the poet teachers inside of CPITS are incredibly dedicated to their kids and to the craft. Uh, there's an anthology that is produced on a yearly basis with the best poems from third grade all the way up to eighth grade and including the work of some of the, the poet teachers themselves. It's an honor to be part of this org. 
Tom and Brisbane, black and brown, indigenous, poor kids, they get so many messages inside of our public school systems that actually don't build them up, right? Don't um, celebrate their brilliance, their humanity, their actual legacy. Um, talk about how programs like CPITS or With Our Words is an antidote to some of the, the ways in which public school systems can break our children down. You know, because I'm in Stockton, uh, we have a, from my vantage point, we have a particular challenge. One, it's so adult-centric that even though we spend tons of hours in meetings and butcher bought paper fastened to endless walls talking about children, way too often, we're not checking for their voices. We're not including them in the conversations that are about them. And so they aren't included in the solutions that are developed for them. And so it's an imposition. And in that imposition of a solution, we're still silencing them. We're still not giving them enough say in how they are being taught what they want to receive. I don't have a problem getting kids to embrace Shakespeare, because I know I'm going to start with Eminem, because the same mm. rhyme scheme is a common thread. Iambic pentameter, okay? Eminem is going to use that. Then I can take them back to the, the Shakespeare's and the um, Elizabeth Barrett Brownings and the Dylan Thomases. But I've got to start with where they are. And too often, in education, we want to start in the past, which is usually centered and grounded in whiteness, mm -hmm. and then try to find a way to shoehorn a little bit of who these kids are into that mix. That doesn't work. They're not going to buy in. But if I start with Kendrick Lamar, if I start with her, if I start with Lizzo, if I start with everybody that's on their playlist and I show them how that playlist relates to a lesson plan, relates to grammar, relates to history, relates to social studies, then you have young people who have elbows on their desks and they're leaning forward. Hmm. Tama, I want to um I want you to talk a little bit about being Stockton's inaugural poet laureate. What has that meant for your life? What does that look like in practice out there? So, I was appointed in 2015 and I'm still the inaugural poet laureate. This is my last term. I am cycling off uh this year, my fourth and final term. I was appointed poet laureate by actually one of my former students who became mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs. And the very first assignment that he gave me was to help Stockton's delegation that was going to the All-American City Finals in 2015. And Stockton hadn't been named an All-American City in about nine years. And so myself and Brandon Leake, who would go on to win America's Got Talent, uh, told Michael, listen, you asked me, so you know that I am going to be creating a spoken word piece. No bells, no whistles, no costumes, no backdrops, no 
fancy stuff. We we're going to tell Stockton's story through spoken word. And that was my very first assignment as Stockton Poet Laureate. From there, I had a chance to go to Ebenezer Baptist Church for the 25th anniversary of the I Have a Dream World Peace Rose Garden. And I had a chance to present spoken word and slam poetry to a group of Chinese children who had never heard a slam poem before, the night before. And then the next day, I'm inside Ebenezer Baptist Church, the sacred place of the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King III in the first row. And I'm talking about peace using a metaphor of roses. And afterwards, he asked for a copy of the poem, and he told me that my words matter. Um, these are the kinds of opportunities for connection through language that I would not have but for being Poet Laureate. Being the inaugural Poet Laureate means that pretty much every step I take is blazing a trail because no one's been here before. It is a challenge because you are Poet Laureate for the entire city and Stockton is a very diverse community. So there are um, there's stratifications that are not just about ethnic diversity. There's geography. There is a particular friction in Stockton from between people who grew up in Stockton, which is still a town trying to figure out how to be a city, and the people from the Bay Area who came over in the late 90s in the first wave, and then the people who are coming over now in, in the second wave. And so there is a rural versus cosmopolitan dynamic that you have to navigate. And as Poet Laureate, my job is to craft pieces for special occasions that can speak to our entire community. Now, fun fact, when they named me Poet Laureate, I told them out front, I said, if you think that you're going to get a cheerleader for Stockton, I'm not going to be that one. Because while I love mm -hmm. this place and I look at it through rose-colored glasses because I want the best for it, please believe I see through these rose-colored glasses. So I am going to call out the flaws and the wrinkles because we have to be honest with each other. We have to have these kinds of honest conversations because that's what spoken word is. It's a creative conversation with the audience. Fortunately, my city has really embraced me and my work and it's, it's been an amazing ride. Tama Brisbane, we are just about out of time, but I would love it if you would spit a little bit of your fire for the folks. So in 2009, Stockton had its first celebration of Transgender Day of Remembrance under the auspices of the amazing Elena Kelly, uh, who is and remains a friend. 
and the LGBTQ community is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it is a point of honor that they don't consider me an ally. They just consider me family. And this poem that I wrote in honor of TDOR is actually one that I spit in Modesto a few years back when Modesto was creating some silly straight pride parade. But anyway, the Proud Boys were there um, in some number. And so I actually spit this poem with some Proud Boys in my face. Uh, it's called TDOR. They were here. Daring to defy dogma and duality for the singular freedom, the everyday revolution of being themselves, transgendered and transcendent, living bravely transitory lives, beautiful in what sunlight moments they could find or borrow or manufacture, translucent, hearts visible on plaid sleeves in rainbow weaves, they were here indelible in their imprint, their existence cannot be erased by executive order, will not be legislated into limbo. And before we bury them, transplant. Let us shroud them in a last or first loving acknowledgement, then lay them to rest with a promise that while we have feet to march towards battle transport, our voices blending together transfusion, out loud in the shouting for change translation. While we have lives dedicated to the splitting asunder of asinine assumptions, and while we have bodies in all of our definitions and presentations transference to place in the way of the enemy translocation, they will be remembered transcribed onto the sacred pages of our memories like Bibles, praying that minds weaponized by Leviticus will someday transition into hearts surrendered unto the peace of Luke. They were here. And we're here too, hopefully transformed. Thank you so much for that family. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This week's Resistance and Residence artist is the city of Stockton's inaugural poet laureate, Tama Brisbane. Tama, thank you so much for your time on LND today. Thank you, Kat. It has been a pleasure. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.